Well, good morning. Well, as we have been speaking on the whole notion of the consistency of the Old Testament with the New Testament by way of introduction on this final message to discuss that very matter, I would like to introduce kind of two concepts to us as we think through the text for this morning, which is found in Romans 10, verse 5. Two concepts, though, as we are introducing this text. And the first concept, as we think about the connectivity scripture, as it sets up for this passage, is the notion of the catchphrase. The catchphrase. The idea that one phrase can bring up a lot of information. One phrase, you say it, and there's just so much caught up within it. We could say something as simple as 9-11. And we all don't just have one thought, we have many thoughts. We could talk about Christmas, and there are many thoughts there. Thanksgiving or the Trinity, those are complex ideas packed by a single word. And catchphrases work by giving a phrase that embodies so much. And catchphrases also work because they are familiar phrases. You can even fill in the blank, for instance, for God so loved. We know that. Or the Lord is my shepherd. Or we can have so many different other phrases where you can fill in the blank, you can understand, you can pick right up, and it is both the notion that you can have one phrase that is familiar and everyone knows, everyone remembers, and everyone remembers all that is entailed within it. And that is the notion of a catchphrase. It is the ability to say a lot in a little and that that little phrase is familiar to all. It kind of reminds me of sometimes what I talk about with my students, that this catchphrase, this notion of a catchphrase, is kind of like a brownie. Well, sometimes at weddings or other festivities, there's a plate of brownies, and they're usually ooey and gooey and delicious. And, you know, I'm trying to be self-disciplined. I'm also trying to show a modicum of of self-control. So I just want one brownie. And my problem is I'm also a very socially awkward person. So inevitably, what happens is you pick up one brownie, but because it's ooey and gooey, it just sticks with the whole plate of brownies. Now what do you do? And you're trying to jiggle it off, and it's just not working. So you just have to take the whole thing. There's no other alternative. And that is like the scriptures. You pick one phrase. You pick one text, and it's just connected with everything else, and you can't separate it. And when you pull on one, you pull on all. And it is familiar to us because it's a catchphrase. It's familiar to us, and it's embodying much because it's a catchphrase. And Paul here in Romans 10.5, and if you read it, it says, For Moses wrote concerning the righteousness which comes from the law. He says, The one who does these things, the man who does these things, will live by them. You say, that's the passage we've been talking about this entire weekend. Leviticus 18.5, indeed. And he is using this as a catchphrase to remind Israel of their responsibility, to remind Israel that they are responsible specifically for their failure. There is a way that you use the law. There is a way that you use God's word and specific passages of his word. And if you do not use it that way, it's your fault. You have used it wrong and it's possible for you to use things wrong. We know that in our own lives. 
That's why there's all these warnings on products. Have you noticed it? You pick up the dishwasher soap, and you look at the dishwasher determinant, and it says this, do not use as mouthwash. Well, thank you. That's helpful. Coffee, hot. Yes, agreed. Hopefully so. Hope that's both a warning and a promise. And my all-time favorite, you know those sun shield, those sun visors you put on in your car to block out the sun and you put them in your windscreen and such? Sometimes they have a tag on this and it says this, please remove before driving. <laughs> oh, that's good to know. There is a way to use things. And if you don't use them the way they're supposed to be used, it's your fault. And you've used it wrong. And you can't blame that thing as if that's what was at fault for you doing what was wrong. And this leads me to the second point. We talked about the first concept that is so helpful as we introduce this passage. That's the notion of a catchphrase. Here's the second idea. Sometimes the way you know how something is right is by understanding what not to do. Sometimes you learn what is right and what is the purpose of an item or an instrument by learning, by process of elimination, what is not that thing. And this whole notion of process of elimination is very important for this text, and there are a lot of illustrations of this, that we get rid of alternatives to reach the one conclusion. You have this with Thomas Edison. How did he figure out how to make a light bulb? By figuring out all the different ways to not make a light bulb. That's what he did. You do this with products on Amazon. You go on and you say, oh, that one looks cool. You click, and then it says 500 reviews, one star. Not that one. And then you keep going, not that one, not that one, not that one, not that one. And Amazon's amazing algorithm pops up. This is the one. 20,000 reviews, all five stars. Well, then you know, Amazon Prime shipping, get it in two days when you click right now. And you know, that's the one. Why? Because it's guided you through all the ones that you shouldn't get for the one that you should get. I joke around that we could almost do this by evangelism. You know, I tell students, hey, careful how you drive, but if you're going to drive crazy, then put on your bumper sticker, I'm a Mormon. You know, or I'm a Jehovah's Witness. People say, oh, look at that crazy driver. Yes, process of elimination. <laughs> Other times I joke with students, hey, that's sometimes how dating works, process of elimination. A guy says, oh, she dumped me. Well, you know, she's not the one for you. One less lady to think about there. We can often do things by process of elimination, and that's what Paul does here. Do you want to understand what the law really does? Let me tell you what it doesn't do. You want to know what the law is really about? You want me to tell you where the law is supposed to go? Do you want to know why you should have known better? Because there was a warning. Don't do it this way. It won't work this way process of elimination. And so Paul uses a catchphrase, a catchphrase that is weighted to demonstrate what the law is not, thereby to show Israel, if you didn't get that message, it's your fault. It's your fault. You can't say no one warned you. You can't say you didn't know better. And you should have known the right way to do it because you knew all the wrong ways to do it and they were all supposed to be eliminated. And so, yes, we are talking about the interconnectedness of Scripture this morning and we need that. But don't miss the main point. 
There is a right way to do things. There is a right way to get righteousness and to have it. And it's not by yourself. And it's not through your own might or abilities. And here is the kind of complete circle of the logic. The interconnectedness of Scripture will drive that point home. And that point home illustrates then the interconnectedness of Scripture. And so we are in the book of Romans, Romans 10, verse 5, and we do need a little bit of context because we need to get our bearings. Why is Paul talking about the nature of the law in Romans 10, 5? This is quite late in the book, and he already said, you can't work your way to salvation. You're wicked. You're depraved. You can't earn it on your own. You can't get it by the law earlier. Why does he need to say it again here? What's going on? Why does he have to be repetitious and redundant? And so how does this all fit together? And let me just flow the book a little bit to set up the situation in Romans chapter 10. The book of Romans as a whole, if you want to put it this way, it is the gospel and the plan of God. It is the gospel and the plan of God that the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, the way that he has dealt with sin, the way that he has dealt with the wrath of God, the way that he has dealt with the unrighteousness of man, that good news is the linchpin of all history. It is the hinge on which the entire plan of God turns upon. It is the resolving point of everything in this world. And how Paul declares this is in Romans chapter 1, and it begins immediately in his opening words, where he not only talks about him being an apostle, and not only talks about him being an apostle of the gospel, but he says, this is according to the prophets of old. He is already starting to help us understand that this gospel, this has always been the point of the story. This has always been the hinge on which it turns. This has always been central and centrifugal to everything in the agenda and purpose of God. And therefore, because it is the ancient message, the constant message, the ubiquitous message of Scripture, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. Put it differently, and this is so important. Because shame is not just embarrassment. That's how we often think about it in our modern terms. But the opposite of shame is not not embarrassed. The opposite of shame is honor. And what Paul says is there is nothing more noble. There is nothing more honorable. There is nothing more glorious. There is nothing more righteous. There is nothing better. There is nothing that brings right to wrong and makes all things aligned and properly arranged than the gospel. That is his thesis. This is the most honorable thing. And we know why. Because when you live in a world filled with depravity, like we see in Romans 1, and where people, even quote-unquote moral people, all they amplify is that they should be condemned because they know better and they are condemned, and that even the Jewish people who have even the means and the right and the revelation of the standard of God, that they can't even achieve it, then you know there is condemnation it is massive, and the depravity is ubiquitous, and the depravity is utter, and the depravity is deep, and the depravity is binding, and it is gross, and it is dark, and it is warped, and there is no way out. What can deliver us from that and all of its consequences? And Paul says in Romans 3, there is a righteousness apart from the law. You can never get righteousness from the law, but God made another way. There is another option, an option that's actually viable, that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and he can make things right, such that God is both just and the justifier. And that is why it must be by faith, because we must trust that God does it all. Faith and grace in that way are two sides to the same coin. God does it all. God intervenes. It is his mighty work of salvation. That is his grace. And what do we do? We don't do anything but trust him to do it all. And so our faith is just an amplification of grace. Our faith is just the human perspective caused by grace to also accept that grace and also to understand that it is all grace. That's all that it is. Faith is not a meritorious work at all. Faith just points to the fact that Jesus did it all and that I've done nothing and that that's why I'm solely dependent on him and I have entrusted myself to him in utter and complete surrender. That is the nature of faith. And Paul says this, that grace and salvation not only deals with the past, people under judgment, people in the disgusting nature and filth of our own sin where we are never right with God. Grace and salvation in Christ not only deals with the past, it deals with the present and even the future. In Romans 5 through 8, he says, therefore, having been justified, we have peace with God. And not only that, we know that our hope will not disappoint because of what God has done in our lives and what God is doing in our lives. That's why it's so significant that the grace that justified is the grace that sanctifies. Because God will do it all and he will resolve all things past and present in his plan in our lives through the gospel. And then that is also why Romans 6 and 7 and 5, 6 and 7 move to chapter 8 where we understand that all creation is groaning and that all creation is expecting the glorification of the sons of God and that in the end, that will take place and nothing can take us out of the hands of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Why? Because of him who saved us and his grace will not fail in the end and therefore we are secured and history is secured and our destiny is secured past, present, future by the gospel. That is the power of the gospel. That is the all-sufficiency of the gospel. It does everything for you, every single thing. And if you have questions and unresolved issues and wickedness in your life right now, you must understand there is only one salvation, and there is only one way, and that is the gospel. That's it. Any other way, it will not work. That is what Paul has established. It's a tour de force of the gospel as the complete resolution of God's plan. You say, that's great. Why do we need 9 through 11? Why don't we just jump to chapter 12? It's a good question. Why do we have 9 through 11, which talks about Israel? Why do we need to care about that? Don't be selfish. Yeah, you're taken care of, and that's sometimes the American way, as long as I'm okay then everything's okay. You are not the world. There is a joke about eschatological views. You have premillennials. They believe that Christ comes before the millennium. You have amillennials. They don't believe that there is a millennium per se. It is a spiritual dynamic. You have postmillennials that believe that Christ comes after the millennial kingdom. And then you have millennials. They believe they're the kingdom. Don't be selfish. Christ and the gospel may have won in your heart, saved you from beginning to end. Amen 
and amen. All glory be to Christ. But God is about things more than just you or me. God's plan is not just about my history and your story. God's plan is for this entire world. The entire created order. Every nation, tribe, and tongue. And that revolves around his people that he has historically established for his purposes. And that is the nation of Israel. And if the gospel cannot deal with them, then it cannot resolve all of God's plan. And therefore, it isn't sufficient. And so Paul, for three chapters, says, this doesn't just deal with things for you and me. Amen. This doesn't just deal with me and you on an individual level. Amen. This is corporate. This is national. This is international. This is global. This gospel is completely sufficient for every person as well as every nation, tribe, and tongue in this entire world for all time. That's why you need Romans 9 through 11. And within this context, and it is an apologetic, it is the case to be made, the question is, did God fail? Did the gospel fail? Because Israel has rejected their Messiah. Israel has rejected the gospel. Did it fail? They don't have their promises. Did it fail? And so Paul has to show the gospel never failed. Our God never failed. And in Romans 9, part of the process of making that proof is to say, why didn't the gospel fail? Why didn't God fail? Why are they not at fault? It is simple, because of God's election. He has always elected a remnant. He has always elected a remnant. And he has kept them. He has kept them, and therefore, he has never done anything wrong. He is not at fault. He is not at fault at all. And then in Romans 11, later on, here's what God will reveal, and here's what Paul will show. And the remnant that God elected, in the end, in the end, there will be a generation where the remnant, the minority, becomes the majority. And all Israel will be saved in the end, just exactly like God promised. And so he has never failed. He has kept his promises in the time of their unbelief, and he will keep his promises in the end when all of them believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved on that day of his return. And so he is faithful through and through. You can never fault our God. He is faithful now, and he is faithful in the future. His gospel works now for Israel, and it works in the future if in fullness. And so no fault has happened, no failure has happened, no error has happened in God or the gospel. So the question becomes, well, whose fault is it? If it's not God's fault, Romans 10 comes in, sandwich in the middle, and says, it's not God's fault. It's not the gospel's fault. It's Israel's fault. Israel went wrong. Israel went wrong. That's why Paul says in Romans 10, I testify about them, that is his brethren, that he loves so much, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, unknowing the righteousness of God, they seek to establish their own righteousness. They want to do it their own way, and they disobey the, and do not submit to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law unto righteousness for each one, each one who believes. That's the way the law was always supposed to work. But they did it their own way. And in doing it their own way, they did not obey God. And so let me put it this way. It's not God's fault to judge them. It's actually God's right to judge them. God did the right thing to judge them because they are wrong 
and by judging them, God is right. So God is right in the beginning, he's right at the end, and he's right in the middle. And Israel is wrong. And so what God, through Paul, must prove now is that Israel should have known better. They should have never done this. They should have never established a righteousness of their own. They should have never gone down that path. And it should have been absolutely clear to them that that was not the way to go. And so therefore, they are rightfully condemned. It's not God's fault. It's their fault. And God is faultless because he judged them as well. And to do that, you have Romans 10 verse 5. And so there are three reasons in this text. Romans 10 verse 5, there are three reasons why Israel should have known better. And they are not only instructive about Israel, they are instructive to us. Because everyone here should know better. We should all know better in our Christian walk, in our Christian lives. And for those who do not know Christ, you should know better. You should not be under any delusion. If you think you can get to heaven on your own, if you think you can stand right before God and stand upright before him, blameless before him because of your own merit, you need to know better. That's not true. And Paul here gives us three reasons, three reasons why that is the case. And the first is this. This is an official statement. This is an official statement on the issue. Notice the opening words. For Moses writes concerning the righteousness that comes out of the law. Look at the first word of that, for. So important. To prove that Christ is the end of the law. Look at verse 4. That's what it says. Christ is the end of the law. To prove that Israel is responsible. To prove that they should have known better. To prove all of those different things, Paul says for. He's about to prove it. He's about to prove it. And this is an audacious claim. To say it's not God's fault, it's your fault. That's a very bold claim. To say that you should have known better, that's a bold claim. To say that, yeah, Christ is the end of the law. That's the way it always worked, even though the law often appears, at least to us and even to Israel, that it's all about our work. That's a bold and audacious claim. So Paul has to prove it. And this first word, for, reminds us this is the proof. And specifically, it's proof, like we talked about in the introduction, by exclusion. It's proof by exclusion. To say, how do you know it's for Christ? How do you know you should have known better? Because there was a warning. Because there was a way not to use this. And that way not to use this was made by this quote of Leviticus 18.5, which we've been studying this weekend. And so to accentuate how official this official statement is, Paul words and crafts the rhetoric carefully. Notice the opening words, for Moses, stop there. You want to know why this is an official statement? Because it comes from the official source. It comes from the official source. Sometimes you hear something, it could be rumor, and people say, have you heard? So-and-so's told me this, or so-and-so told so-and-so who told so-and-so who told me this. And you say, are you really sure? Yes, because so-and-so told so-and-so told so-and-so told so-and-so. It's only four removed from me, so it must be true. Five might be dangerous, but four is okay. That's not found in the Bible, by the way. It's just people make things up. It reminds me of a time one time that I first became the president of the Masters University, and a student trying to negotiate something came up to me unbeknownst to that 
and said, this is the way it has to be. And I said, oh, really? Why? And the student replied, because, because it's the right thing. And I said, well, no, I don't think it's actually the right thing. I, I think, you know, biblically, we, we should do some things this way and that way. And, and then the student said, well, I heard from somebody. I heard from somebody that the president of this institution told us it was going to be this way. I said, really? <laughs> and the student said, yes, the president said so. So what do you say to that? And I said, hmm, um, I, I, don't, I don't think that's the case. The person said, I heard it from a good source. <laughs> and I said, me too. <laughs> I said, I'm the president. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we need things from an official source. Not hearsay, not third step rumor, you want something from the horse's mouth, so to speak. And that's why Paul opens with the word Moses. You want to know what the law is all about? Go to the person who wrote it. What did he have to say about it? Not some later interpreter, not some later prophet, not Paul, who's even later than all of that. Go to the source's mouth. What was it from day one? What was it the moment it came out? What was it? You want an official statement? Get it from the official source. What we have here is the official source. And not only that, it's an official declaration. Notice the next phrase. For Moses wrote, or for Moses writes. That word write is important. It denotes penning something down, composing something down, using a stylus and ink, so to speak, and etching it on paper or even in stone. And that matters. Even today, what do people say about contracts? What do people say about deals? What do people say about promises? Get it in writing. We always say that. Verbal promises, they can't be held accountable. Verbal promises, they can change. You might have misheard. They might have misheard. You want everything in writing. We know that. That's a contract. That's when it becomes official. You know people say, oh, this is off the record. Off the record, off the record. You know that people even say, oh, this is on the record, but they talk about it so you know that you can never call them on it. But when somebody puts it down on paper, it's official. It's official. What has Moses done? What does Paul remind us that Moses did? He wrote it down. You want to get it from the horse's mouth. You want to get it from the official source, and you want something that is the official declaration. That's what we have here. That's what we have right here. Moses wrote. And it's not just the official source. It's not just the official declaration. It is on the very topic that Paul is covering. It is concerning the righteousness which is of the law. The righteousness which comes from the law. This is the idea of, hey, how do you have righteousness? How could you ever get righteousness from doing the law? How could the law ever be used as the source or the production or the means of obtaining righteous standing and righteous acts and a righteous conclusion and verdict from God to man? How could that ever happen? And frankly... That's the very question the Jews were trying to answer and trying to accomplish. And Paul here says, Moses said something about that. Moses said something about that. And all of this makes this then an official statement on the matter. 
If there is anything that addresses this issue, it is what Paul is about to say. And here is where the interconnectivity of Scripture, Moses and Paul being so consistent with one another, it helps us to understand the force of this. Because everything Paul has said in these words that we have just covered just now, it's exactly what the Old Testament said. Who wrote the book of Leviticus? Moses. Did he write it down? Yes, he did. And not only that, was it an official declaration of the righteousness which comes from the law? If you remember last sermons of of last night, what we had in context of Leviticus 18.5 was that Leviticus 18.5 by context was the summary statement and the severity of God's holy standard. Israel was wondering, why is God so serious? Why is God so strict? Why does personal morality and even sexual ethics have to be so austere? And the answer of God was this. Here are my statutes. Here are my judgments. The man who does them will live by them. That's my standard. That's my standard. Therefore, this is the standard If you want to satisfy the holiness of God, this is the standard of how far, how severe, how serious God is about his own holiness. Therefore, this is the standard if you want righteousness out of the law. This is the standard that God has. This is the standard that God has. And therefore, what Paul has written down here is exactly what Moses said. You can think of it this way. Sometimes our problem in life is that we ask bad questions. We ask bad questions. It reminds me of a time when I first was teaching at the master's college at the time, and a generous, generous individual in the class said, I'd love to take all of your students out to lunch. I own a restaurant in the area, and I just love to supply everyone in the class with free food from that restaurant. And I said, wow. Thank you. I'm so hungry. Uh, I appreciate that. And I know they're all hungry too because we're all poor. So thank you. Thank you. And a girl got up and said, I like Pizza Hut better. Can I have that instead? I was so shocked. I didn't even know what to say at first. And eventually I took the young lady aside and explained the situation to her. And she goes, that was a bad question. Yeah. That's a bad question. Sometimes we can ask the wrong questions, the wrong questions of the scripture, the questions that the Bible doesn't want us to ask. We can ask questions in theology that are speculative and that we don't need to ask, and they're leading us down the wrong track. There are times when we ask the wrong questions, and the Bible, because it doesn't want us to ask that question because it's not a profitable question, won't give us an answer refuses to give us an answer to guide us from a wrong question to a right question. But there are other times, there are other times When there is a question and the Bible answers it and you've asked the right question and the Bible gives you a direct answer. And in those cases, that makes the direct answer, the definitive, definitional, authoritative, conclusive, final statement on the matter. The matter is settled with that statement. And what you have here is this. Paul asked a question. The Jews asked a question. Everybody's asking a question. Can I earn my own salvation? Can I just do some things in the law and get some righteousness? And the Bible says, I have an answer for that. Here it is. Leviticus 18.5. That's the definitive answer. And here's something really important. 
if you think, well, maybe the Old Testament had one idea of salvation and you could work your way up. But then, of course, the New Testament has a different idea and the New Testament just made up what the Old Testament said. It was just Paul's idea. That's all that it was. Paul says, not so. This came from the original source. This is the original declaration. This is official. This is about the very topic. And this is what Moses himself said and designed the law to be about this very issue. You can't get any more official than that. And the consistency of Old Testament to New Testament means this. You have one Bible that testifies of one truth on this matter. And the case then is closed. That's it. This is the official statement of the word of God. We need to understand how definitive it is because it takes away any excuse on our part to think otherwise. And it took away all Israel's excuse to justify themselves as well. So what is this official statement? What does it say? That leads us to the second point, the official standard. The official standard. What is this official statement, this official declaration written down by Moses? Well, let's read the text together, the rest of verse 5. The one who does these things, the man who does these things, will live by them. The man who does these things will live by them. A word-for-word translation of the Old Testament exactly what it says. And by way of review, since we delved deep into this last night, let's recap what we talked about. The holiness of God means this. It is a standard that affects every person. It is personal. That's why it says the man, the man. You cannot just absorb somebody else's holiness by default. You can't just have it rub off on you. This is not holiness by association. And likewise, when you mess up, when I sin, when any of us commits transgression, you cannot play the blame game. This is for each one of you, each one of us, the man, the man. This is also a perfect standard. Why? Because you will have to do these things. You will have to do these things. And what are these things? Well, in the Old Testament context, which Paul is relying on, it is talking about statutes and judgments. And as we talked about last night, statutes refers to every single principle, every single boundary line of what is right and what is wrong. And therefore, what God is not just getting at is, oh, this is as long as you do do a couple of these things and act a couple of these ways in the particulars that I've given to you, you're okay. No. You actually have to have the right theology. You actually have to have the right motivation, which means you actually have to have the right heart and mentality about every single thing you are doing. And if you don't do it that way, you, don't, you haven't obeyed the statutes. You've, you've done the actions. You've done the lip service, but you don't have the right heart. You have, com- you have observed the letter of the law, but you haven't observed the spirit of the law. And God said, Observing both wasn't just a New Testament thing. It was an Old Testament thing. That's why I didn't just give you judgments. I gave you statutes. Likewise, though, at the same time, there are judgments. Every particular verdict, every particular decision, every particular situation, every particular contingency, every particular circumstance, all of that, you have to to execute God's exact will in all of it all the time. And so here's the totality of perfection. You have to have 
righteousness and holiness of the totality of God's word in every single circumstance, every single time from the inside out. That is what God demands. That's what the law has always pointed to. You do things for the right reasons, the right way, and the right end, and you do it comprehensively rightly. That's why there are statutes. That's why there are judgments in the plural. You don't just have to worry about one law. You don't just have to worry about one situation. You don't just have to worry about one principle. You have to worry about them all, all at the same time. That's perfection. And Paul repeats what Moses says. Those, the man who does these things, plural, not just one thing, all of them. God has a perfect standard. And not only does he have a perfect standard, he has a performative standard. That's why it says the one who does these things not just wants to do these things, not just is eager to do these things, not just has good will toward these things. You don't get a participation trophy in sanctification. You don't have a just, oh, well, he meant well. Sanctification is not just about good intentions. It's about performance. And God's holiness is not just about good will. It is about perfect execution. That's God's standard. And of course, Paul here affirms with the Old Testament that this perfect, personal, and performative standard is punitive. You will live by them. Now, now, it may seem like a promise here. You do all that, you can live. Great. But if you stop and think about it, can you really keep personally a perfect and performative standard all the time? And the answer is no. And if that's the only way you're going to live, then most likely you're not going to live. You're going to what? Die. And that is what is insinuated here. God says this is the standard. If you want to live, this is what you have to do. You will live by them. You engage in the law to try to attain holiness. You engage in the law so that you personally, by yourself, can satisfy God's holiness. You live that way? That's the only way you're going to have to live then. You want to try that? Then that's the way you're going to have to live it all the way. Survive or perish. Do or die. That's really the standard here. That's really the standard here. And Moses and Paul are in total agreement. And Paul, by repeating every single one of these phrases that is found in the Old Testament, he affirms exactly what Moses is. And there is absolute consistency here. And let me just make a clarification in case there might be still confusion. Again, sometimes people read this and they just think this is a great promise. Just because you have a presence of a standard, it is not a guarantee that the standard will be met. Sometimes the presence of a standard is the direct opposite in purpose. When a teacher gives out a course syllabus or a course standard for their classes, that's not a guarantee that every student gets an A. Likewise, this is my favorite. Sometimes kids, you know, they ask their parents something and their, kid, their parents, they give a certain kind of response. The kid says, Mom, Dad, can I have a car? If you can buy one. The response is not, oh, well, if that's all that's involved, okay. Look, if they could buy one, they wouldn't be asking you. When you say, if you can buy one, 
That's a true standard. Yeah, you can buy it. If you buy a car, you can have a car. No problems. But you know what? They can't. So that's the answer. The presence of a standard does not mean that you will automatically achieve the standard. Sometimes you won't. And that's the point. Here, God says, here's a standard. You want to try? Go ahead and try. It won't work. It won't work. Because you're just a man. You're just a man. You're fallible and frail and finite. It won't work. And yes, yes, it is true. As we think about these words, we we should be convicted about the holy standard of God for our own sanctification. Absolutely. But if you really think about this standard that we just talked about, how perfect it is, personal, performative, and punitive, if we think about that realistically, objectively, humbly, and honestly, there is no one who could ever think, yep, I could totally do that. I could fulfill that 100% of the time on my own and therefore, therefore have life. I'm that perfect. No one could ever dream of that. And Israel couldn't either. Israel couldn't either. And that's why this standard is a proof of exclusion. You can't use the law this way. It just won't work. The standard is there to demonstrate what you cannot do, what you cannot accomplish on your own. This is not something that Paul made up or added to the Old Testament. This is something that is completely consistent between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Paul and Moses, they're saying the same thing. This is the way and the way it is all along. And that is the beauty of the connectivity of the Old Testament with the New Testament. This standard, it's not an isolated idea. The weight of all divine revelation from Moses to Paul stands behind this statement. That's Paul's point. It's an official standard, and it's a weighty standard, and no one made up the standard. God has always had the standard. He's never changed from the standard from Old to New Testament. All divine revelation is consistent. So what you have is an official, official statement that gives you an official standard that you can't keep, that excludes Israel's righteousness and attempt at righteousness. They should have known better because of all that is happening here. And they really, really should have known better because all these things of this official statement with this official standard leads to the third point, which is an official sentence. An official sentence. You see, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're not just consistent, they're compounding. You know, Moses and Paul, They weren't the only ones who talked about Leviticus 18.5. They weren't the only ones who used it. There were prophets and there were others. There is a reason why Paul cites it. Because Israel should have been so used to hearing this phrase over and over and over again that they would have and should have learned the lesson and never done what they just did. They should have known better because it was said so many times they should have learned by the repetition. And this is where what we talked about originally with the notion of a catchphrase comes in. Everyone knew this was a catchphrase. Everyone knew what this was all about. Everyone knew when this was said, they knew how to fill in the blank. They knew where it came from, and they knew what the conclusion was of it. They knew that. They understood that because it was used over and over and over and over and over again. And so with that, the official statement becomes the official standard, and it only has one official sentence, one official conclusion. And that's what the weight of the interconnectivity of the scriptures demonstrate. 
Let me give you some examples. Before Israel went into exile, and we were aware of this from last night, there was the prophet Ezekiel. There was the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. The prophet is dealing with Israelites who say, this is not our fault. We're getting punished because of our parents. It's not our fault. And God says, no, it's your fault. It's your fault. And God says this, look, I gave you the law. And I gave your parents the law. I gave everyone the law. Verse 9 says this, And if you walked in my statutes and in my judgments, you would be righteous and live by them. Have you heard this before? Have you heard this before? Well, did Israel do this? Clearly not. That's why they're asking the question, why are we about to be judged? No one does it. And so what you have is when the question arises, is this our fault? Then there's an official statement made. And the official standard is given of Leviticus 18.5. And guess what? The official sentence is very clear. You know what it is? You're guilty. You're guilty. And then if they don't get it in chapter 18, Ezekiel says, I think you guys still have this problem. So let's do Ezekiel 20. And you say, why does God have to repeat himself? Because in Ezekiel 20, it kind of reminds me of that one game show where it says, is this your final answer? Is this your final answer? You know, who wants to be a millionaire or something like that? And, and there was always, is this your final answer? And this is what Israel's asking God. Hey, exile might be coming pretty soon. We can see the handwriting on the wall. God, is this your final answer? I mean, maybe you can back out. And God says, do you want me to rehearse your history? Like, all you've done from the moment you began is sin. Have you noticed that, Israel? You sinned. You sinned in the wilderness. You sinned in the promised land. You're sinning now. What do you think I'm going to do? Hello. And God repeatedly in Ezekiel 20, he cites Leviticus 18.5. He says, I gave you statutes. If a man does them, he'll live by them. Have you done them? Have you done them? No. Okay, you're not going to live. Over and over and over, he says that. In fact, it gets to the point where in Ezekiel 20, verse 25, it says this. The law is not good and will not give you life. If you thought this was a promise, Israel, let me help you clear it up. It won't work that way. This is not a promise. This is the presence of a holy standard that you can't keep. That you can't keep. And so there was an official statement made because there was a question. Is this God's final answer? Are we going to get judged? And the, there was an official standard within that. And the standard was Leviticus 18.5. And then there was an official sentence. And what was the official sentence? You're going to get judged. You're going to get judged. It works the same way every time. And then, then after the exile happens, they come back home. You might think, hey, exile 70 years. Maybe people got forgetful and they maybe changed their mind about this passage. Uh-uh. Nehemiah chapter 9, after the exile is over, in Nehemiah 9, he is recounting Israel's history. He is recounting to the entire nation all that went wrong and all that that happened. And in verse 29, it says, Israel acted presumptively against God and disobeyed his statutes and judgments, which a man will live if he does them. Does that sound familiar? It's Leviticus 18.5. And what was the opening sentence of verse 29? They did and acted what? Presumptuously. Did they ever keep it? No. And so before the exile, there was an official statement, an official standard, an official sentence. And after the exile, there was a, an official statement, official standard, and an official sentence. It's always, always repeated over and over again. You say, fine, fine. 
That's in the Old Testament. But maybe the New Testament changed. Maybe the New Testament authors did something different. Maybe, how do we know if there's representation to show that there's consistency all the way through? How about Jesus? He's a good representative of the New Testament, I think. And he's talking to a lawyer in Luke chapter 10, verse 28. And the lawyer says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you just think, have you not read the Old Testament? Do you not know that you can't do that? That's the wrong question. And so Jesus says, well, how would you talk about it? And he says, oh, love your neighbor, love your, you know, and all these different things, love God. And, and Jesus says, yes, do these things and you will live. Where is that from? Leviticus 18.5. What is Jesus doing? Hint, hint. Hello. Do you not remember everyone saying this? Ezekiel and Nehemiah and the prophets and Moses. You can't do it. And the lawyer kind of got it because he said, well, who's my neighbor? Right? He, he tries to do this deflection thing. And Jesus destroys him through the parable of the Good Samaritan and says, by even asking who's your neighbor, you ask the wrong question. As if people have to be good enough for you to serve them. That shows the arrogance of your own heart. You're that clueless. You don't know anything. And God shows thereby from Old Testament to New Testament, there's an official statement, there's an official standard, and there's an official sentence. It was Jesus who said it. It was Nehemiah who said it. It was Ezekiel who said it. It was Moses who said it. Everybody's saying the same thing. So now, do you understand why Paul is doing what he does? Because there's a question asked. Maybe the Jews, what's wrong with them trying to establish their own righteousness? Not God's righteousness, but their own righteousness through the law. They act just like the lawyer with Jesus, yes? So what does Paul do? He says exactly what Jesus says. He says exactly what Jesus says. Do you want to know the consistency of hermeneutic of the Old Testament and the New Testament? It's this, that everyone not only understands the text the same way, they use it exactly the same way. They use it exactly the same way. Paul uses it exactly the same way as Jesus, who uses it exactly the same way as Nehemiah, who uses it exactly the same way as Ezekiel, who used it exactly the way that Moses originally intended it to be, the exact tool for the job. That's how precise the Bible is. That's how precise the Bible is. And with this, with this clarity, with this obviousness, this is a catchphrase. Every single time you hear this phrase, you should know. Yeah, we can't do that. Yeah, that's not going to work. Yeah, I'm a loser. Yeah, I'm a sinner. That's not going to achieve anything. And any Jew and any person could never say then, oh, it's not my fault. It's not my fault that I couldn't keep the law. No, it is. There's an official standard, and you can't hit it. And it's a personal standard, so it's about you. You can't say, oh, well, I didn't know. How, how was I supposed to know that you can't use the law that way? Really? There's an entire Old Testament to a New Testament starting from the very beginning that gave the warning label, don't do this, it won't work. And then people might say, well, maybe it wasn't clear. Maybe it just, I just wasn't obvious. What do you mean it's not obvious? Everyone's been saying this over and over and over. Well, maybe it was inconsistent. People give mixed signals. I don't know how you could give a mixed signal when everyone is saying the same thing from Moses to Jesus to Paul. And if anyone, Jew or Gentile, is still thinking, maybe I should give it a try to do righteousness on my own. No, 
There's a 100% track record that that doesn't work. The whole Bible is so clear. Look, if you want to understand how this kind of works, there's this song. I don't even know how it goes. It's like old MacDonald had a farm, E-I-E-I-O. That's the only part I really know. And then, it's, I don't know, he has ducks or something, and they quack, quack, whatever, whatever. But the ending always goes, old MacDonald had a farm, E-I-E-I-O. And even if you don't know the song, at least everyone joins the chorus, E-I-E-I-O. Look, Leviticus 18.5 is the E-I-E-I-O. Everyone knows when you hear those words, there's one outcome and one thing that comes about it. And it's this, you cannot satisfy the righteousness and holiness of God on your own. It's impossible. Don't even bother to try. It won't work. E-I-E-I-O, that's what it is. That's the one conclusion. And with that here, we have the sufficiency of the gospel. It will change your life. It will secure my life, beginning, middle, and end. And it will work things out for the nations, particularly Israel. And God has never failed. He has been sovereign for Israel, even in their unbelief, because he preserved a remnant. And he will be sovereign over them. And he will show the sufficiency of the gospel as they will be redeemed in the end, an entire generation God was never at fault, but man was responsible. Man was responsible. They should have known better. Why? Because they had the E-I-E-I-O. Because they had the phrase that was used over and over to point out, you're guilty. You can't do this. You can't work righteousness from the law. When that question is ever raised, the Bible has a statement. It's definitive. And by process of elimination, you know it will never work. It will never work. And it is so clear, and you can think of it this way, the weight of the entire Bible. This is not just, oh, well, this is a new idea of the New Testament, but the Old Testament has something different. No, the weight of the entire Bible, Old Testament to New Testament, declares that. If you think otherwise, you are defying this whole book. That's what you are doing. God has spoken. There is one message. It is consistent, and therefore it is conclusive. You can't, you cannot have righteousness from the law. But it's a process of elimination, isn't it? A process of exclusion, yes? So if you can't have it there, then there's only one place you can have it. It's not through the law. It's not through you. And if it's not through the law, and it's not through you, It's exactly where Paul says it is, isn't it? With Christ. For Christ is the end of the law. Run to Christ. Stop thinking you can earn it. Stop trying to justify yourself, whether you are justifying yourself in your sin or trying to justify yourself before the Lord as if you're a good person. Stop trying It won't work. The law is clear. It cannot be used that way. It does not function that way for any mere mortal man. Run to Christ. He's the only one who can make you right. He is the one by virtue of his death who satisfied the punishment of God, the wrath of God, the penalty of sin. And he is the one by virtue of his resurrection who gives us new life and his righteousness becomes our own. One that we could never obtain or procure on our own. And that reality of running to Christ, that's not just for us here. That's for Israel too. That's what they need to do. They need to run to Christ. They need to run to Christ 
That's the only way forward. And here's the beauty. Here's the beauty if you understand all of this. They will one day. They will. You say, but they seem so hopeless. They seem so helpless. They don't get it. Yes, but what did we just learn? It was never up to you. It was never up to me. That's where Israel went wrong. When they thought they could take matters into their own hands, that's where they went wrong. And the principle that condemns them in the end will be the principle that will save them. Because it was never up to them. Yes, if it was up to them, exactly Leviticus 18.5 kicks in negatively. Exactly that's what happens. No man can fulfill the law of God. No man can satisfy his holiness. But it was never up to us to begin with. It's always been about not us, but who? By process of elimination, Christ. And that is why, he is why, Israel will be saved in the end and the plan of God will be resolved. And that demonstrates, brothers and sisters, the sufficiency of our gospel. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for its clarity. Thank you for its consistency. We are humbled that the apostles and the prophets and the Lord Jesus himself used it so precisely and accurately down to the word, down to the context, nailing all of those factors so adequately and amazingly. May we know the Bible just as well, as well as the saints of old who studied it so hard. And we thank you for the all-sufficient gospel. We are excluded. You have excluded us. Our works play no part. And we give you all the glory for that because it magnifies the one by process of elimination who is the one we run to. And that is your son. And we even give him glory that as such, he is the one who fulfills all promises, not only to the church, but even to your people Israel so that all honor goes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is to his honor that we pray these things. Amen.